I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you so much, John, as ever. Thanks to everyone at the uh, London Review Bookshop, of course, for making all these wonderful events possible in this extraordinary arc, this kind of refuge sanctuary and also uh, provocation to the larger culture outside about the state of things. Um, and that state of things, of course, um, is something we're all, all too aware of, which is why tonight's event makes us um, even more delighted than it normally would. Um, I should say that, um, of course, the, the gift of this building starts in the toilet, this major toilet action on the literature front, just as a random selection of leaflets taken from the facilities <laughs> a minute or so ago reveal the, the UK's only dedicated documentary cinema, uh, an upcoming event here, of course, Vanishing Points Contemporary Writing from El Salvador, the 1st of June, we'll be plugging that a bit more later. Anthony Rudolph, nice postcard of his uh, European hours from Carcanet. But also, one hand clapping. I'm glad that uh, all of you used both hands just now. Please do remember to use both at the end of the evening. But this is a magazine called One Hand Clapping, which features such uh, interesting writers as Les Murray, Mark Doty, Al Alvarez, and Coim Tobin. So that's uh, in the toilet. And that's before you even hit the shelves. So um, do keep an eye out on all parts of the building um, and all the various wall areas. Major event action over there, of course. Wine at the back, so do stay afterwards for another drink and obviously for the major signing operation that we have underway here with our wonderful guests, the multi-award winning John Burnside, of course, who needs no introduction across poetry, essays and fiction. He's carved out this unique, singular space of major engaged inquiry into the world we live in and a better world that might come out of our more engaged response to it, shall we say. And we're delighted, given the large historical thematic concern of the book that we're about to talk about, that Matthew Beaumont, professor of English at UCL, is with us. A key utopian stalwart, of course, in keeping that idea alive over several key books, and also his own night walking across the city, recently published by Verso. It's itself a kind of utopian act, of course, stepping out into the darkness, bringing back shards of light from that space that has been so long forbidden for so many people. So we're delighted that both John and Matthew, of course, are with us tonight, and you as well, because utopia is a collective activity. You can, I suppose, have a private utopia, but it wouldn't necessarily be called that. It probably shouldn't be called that. It might be called a dangerous obsession, I guess, if it um, takes too much root in your bedroom or other shed-like choice of abode. Um, we're delighted. This is a collective endeavor we're discussing tonight in the space of Havergay, which is John's response to this 500-year-old theme. I should declare an interest, a partisan interest. I was involved in the Utopia Year last year at Somerset House, Utopia 2016, as was Matthew. Um, and was a, a part of the uh, approach to John to write this book, to think out loud for us about what his utopia or his response to the theme might be. And we're delighted now to be holding it. Thanks to Little Toller Books, of course, a great favourite here at the London Review Bookshop. Um, this is their new monograph series of contemporary writing uh, about responses to the natural world in the broadest possible sense. E ecological writing rather than environmental writing, I think. So, John, um, delighted to welcome you here now. And I wonder if you could just set the scene for us as to how, once this invitation came, you, you took us towards Havergay, because clearly the themes in the book and your uh, response to the, to the invitation 
have been working through you and through your writing for many years, I think, in different ways. Yeah, um, well, I did that. I was asked to write this book last year, which made sense because it was the anniversary of Thomas More, etc. And I did actually write it last year. I want to make that clear. <laughs> I don't want to get a reputation for delivering a book a year late or anything like that. But um, for various reasons, it has slipped into, into now. It's always nice to have the last word. I, mean, I remember <laughs> talking about Utopia last year. But um, yeah, I, I know, when I heard the word Utopia mentioned, I thought, well, OK, this is a fiction. I didn't want to write a novel because the space was too small. And, but I thought it'd be quite fun to do a kind of half of a novel, as it were, to lay out a whole bunch of clues as to what a full novel might be if you were to build up about the other half of it, as it were. But also, um, let's be frank, I just wanted to throw in a, a big bucket on my ideas about anarchism. And I, and I thought that was a good excuse to do that. <laughs> I had been planning to write, and I still am planning to write a book called How to Be an Anarchist. Um, but um, so far, no, my agent's not shown much interest. In this book. <laughs> and very few publishers have as well. But um, I will do it one of these days. And so far, I've only managed to slip it in as a subtitle for my book on Henry Miller, which is coming out next year, mm. plug, uh, from Princeton <laughs> University Press. Um, but yeah, I want to talk about anarchism. Um, I've been talking a lot about an the ideas of anarchism um, with my very good friend, Karen Ross, who's currently in New York, is coming over here quite soon again. And Karen wrote a great book called The Leaderless Revolution a few years ago, which was one of the... <coughs> One of, the, one of the finest books I've read for a long time, um, talking about how, you know, really how we need to get ourselves together and start getting rid of our leaders and actually acting for ourselves and the principles of true anarchism. And, and of course, when you start talking about anarchism, people think, oh, this guy wants to throw bombs into the emperor's carriage or something, or blow something up. Unless real anarchists are, are actually uh, peaceful because we believe that um, by one of the principles of anarchism is to follow the way that, that nature uh, shows us, you know, that, that not to force anything, not to go against um, the, the natural flow of things. And therefore, to do that, is, to do violence is to do that. So it's counterproductive. So we don't actually believe in violence. That doesn't mean you're necessarily pacifist. And one of the things I wanted to deal with in the book is these characters who've come together on Have a Gay, they've made a kind of utopian world. What would their position be with regard to defending that world? Because we have this question of territory wherever human beings gather together. You know, I think Jesus said it, wherever two or three are gathered together, you're going to start fighting about who owns what. And, and you know, I wanted this community to thought that through and realize that their duty was to protect the land. And therefore, they would fight, if necessary, mm. against people who want to destroy or damage or degrade the land. And that's the only um, justification I can think of for battle, as it were. But that's not violence. You know, reactive, protective um, engagement in battle isn't violence. The violence is being done, is being done from outside as, as the aggressor. So that was one of the main questions. If you're going to have a utopia, what happens if you establish utopia? The obvious thing that you start thinking about then is somebody else wants to come along and take it away from you. Whether you respond to that by saying, okay, take it away, I'd rather do that than, than, than be violent. 
is one, is one possibility. But if it's to do with the land itself and degradation of the land, it's what, what, we, what we've done, then you would fight to protect it. So that's one of the main questions for me. And the question of this idea of Karen wants to call himself, a, I think the last thing he wanted to say was gentle anarchist. Or, but I don't think we should say that. I think we should say we're anarchists, and anarchist means peace. Mm-hmm. It's all about peace. It's got nothing to do with throwing bombs into the, you know. They were the worst anarchists. They were also very inefficient. Usually they didn't kill the guy, they usually killed the wrong person. And one anarchist, so-called anarchist, is famous for, uh, he tried to kill some minister, he threw the bomb in the wrong carriage or something, he got arrested anyway, and then they tried to hang him, and the rope broke. And he said, there's nothing Africa right for me. <laughs> you know? And I, didn't, I wanted the anarchists to share that image, that we were all a bunch of inept, bomb-throwing idiots with long hair. But I actually grew my hair long recently, that's another story. <coughs> So in terms of, of uh, your setting uh, of Havergate on a Scottish island, was that always going to be, it was always going to be an island? Was it always going to be in your part of the world? Was that an inevitable outcome of the invitation? Well, the, it's not actually in my part of the world. It's on the west coast of Scotland. Right. I don't deal with west people. I'm stick from with the east. east, stick with yeah, the east. Yeah, I'm from the east. In the larger geography yeah. then perhaps. And occasionally I speak to a Glaswegian, but they're very polite. But <laughs> in general, we avoid talking to <laughs> Westerners. You know. Now, um, Havergate had to be an island first. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to call it something non-Scottish. And so Havergate is a corruption of the Icelandic word for nowhere. I mean, obviously it has to be called nowhere, right? But you couldn't call it utopia. And you couldn't call it various other things that have been used. Um, nowhere backwards, you know, etc. So I thought, well, Icelandic and um, Habergate is a corruption of that Icelandic word. It's, it's, and it comes out really beautiful. It's a, a nice place. And I think one of the first things that people were talking about the book said it was billed as, as I would take the reader on a trip to Habergate as if it was a real place, you know, with its own flora and fauna and stuff. And I thought that'd be a nice follow up book, you know, with this, you know, here's the rare Habergate turn. <laughs> <laughs> Etc. Only, only it's maggots. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but it had to be. It had to be. Uh, it had to be somewhere. Out. I had the landscape I knew quite well. Yeah. And I guess Scottish Island landscapes are the ones I know best. Yeah. Should we hear a little bit from it? Is that okay? Well, I, I wanted to maybe read just a bit about about dystopia because um, that was the original brief in a sense was to talk about the idea of utopia or at least to think about the idea of utopia and write something coming out of that. Now this is, um, the idea of the book was not to have one voice dominate it, and this is several voices, and I, I, I didn't want to make them all likable. What I really hate these days is, people say to me, my students for example say to me, I give them a book to read and say, what did you think? And they say, I didn't like it. You didn't? Anna Karenina, you didn't like it? <laughs> and, no, I didn't like any of the characters. They weren't sympathetic. I think, what? <laughs> you, know, you don't read a book because the characters are sympathetic. So my main, the main speaker of the whole book, actually, who puts forward all of the things that I most agree with, is actually a bit of a bore. It means it's somewhat tedious. He kind of goes on a bit about all of the stuff that he's learned. But this is Chloe, who, she's disappeared now. We don't know what happened to her. She probably died in one of the great um, disease plagues that happened. But this is her trying to write about her home village, mm. which her father basically owns. Is from 
aristocratic family. I don't know if you know that Scotland is the second most feudal country in Europe. So it's, it's owned by about 200 families. And when you, when you start thinning it down, it's actually a large part is owned by, you know, about 10 people or something. So Harrogate is the kind of ironic result of um, the, the collapse of this aristocratic family, leaving the space for, for the people who actually know how to look after it to take it over and actually look after it. <laughs> So this is Chloe. Remember, she's only 16. She's very naive and, and, and idealistic. Have a gay village. If it is not driven by development, that is by money, a village emerges in response to the physical surroundings and the weather, of course. At one time, Havergay was such a village. But it has to be said that the reign of the fallen bees, that's the aristocrats, compromised that spontaneous process. Luckily, not as much as Brother Hugh intended, for which I thank the spirits of this place. And London, of course, where the pickings are easy and far from slim. Sorry, and London, of course, where the pickings are easy and far from slim, or easy, at least for men of Brother Hugh's caliber. We also thank the earth spirits for Thomas Edison's Follinsby's father, Ashworth Follinsby, crafty old bugger that he was. Somehow he foresaw Hughes coming and arranged things so that any heir, no matter how obnoxious, would have to respect the essential virtues of Harrogate Village. Cottages would be to be maintained to a high standard and rents fixed. He managed to get round some of that with his merry band of quick brown lawyers. There would always be a well-stocked library with librarian on the island. The harbour would only be used for fishing boats below a certain size. There'd be no ferry port. Anyone who wanted to get to the mainland would have to negotiate with the pilot of the mail boat, which came in twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. At every turn, he closed off every scheme someone like Hugh might come up with, some of them not even anticipated by most folk back then. In my mind's eye, I see him walking around the harbour and out across the meadows, stopping to talk to one of his tenant farmers. He had no factor, which is rare. You know what a factor is? In Scotland, the factor's the most hated man in the community. He's the kind of dog, you know, his master's voice dog for the, for the boss. He had no factor, which was rare in those days, when every estate was overseen by just such a person, loathed by all, though high in his own estimation, then rambling out to the farthest corners of the island, looking for ways in which the greedy and the small-minded might try to turn the good land to a quick profit. The one thing he didn't anticipate was the wind turbine, but I shall talk of that later. However, as the old novelist used to say, I digress. I was discussing my distaste for the word dystopian, though to express this both fully and succinctly, the first I might attempt alone, the second I feel altogether unfurnished to tackle, as this wordy aside perfectly demonstrates, I could do no better than call upon the father of the English novel himself, Samuel Richardson, who in Clarissa or the History of a Young Lady declares that hope is the cordial that keeps life from stagnating. This is not to say that diagnostic analysis of social conditions and problems should not inform a novel. Indeed, the best utopian novels propose, at the very least, an implicit critique of their author's social milieu, laws, and customs. Another digression, though hopefully more pertinent, 
The first time the word dystopian goes down in recorded usage is when J.S. Mill invokes it in March 1868 to speak not of a fictional situation, but of, sorry, but of catastrophic real-life conditions caused by the British government's policies in Ireland. In a long and spirited speech, he derides the conservative government of the day thus, I may be permitted as one who, in common with many of my betters, has been subjected to the charge of being utopian, to congratulate the government on having joined that goodly company. It is perhaps too complimentary to call them utopians. They ought rather to be called dystopians or cacotopians. What is commonly called utopian is something too good to be practicable, but what they appear to favor is too bad to be practicable. <laughs> That's the conservative government of the day. Nothing like the conservative <laughs> government have now. Thank you very much, John. Well, let's, let's, let's hold that thought about the, the <coughs> dialogue with dystopia. Matthew, perhaps you could think out loud for us about where John's uh, take on this perennial theme sits in the, in the, in the canon, because it's a very self-aware take on this theme, isn't it? It's, it's, it's as you were saying to us earlier, it it's, uh, wears its uh, awareness very lightly, but it's deeply engaged with this form of literature as, as proposal and, and doesn't hide away from the fact that it's, or doesn't try and propose that it's the first one or it's in isolation. Yeah, no, I think that's, is, that, is this working, incidentally? I don't have a lot of faith in my quiet. microphone, but... Um, I'll plough on. Um, yeah, it's, um, I think self-aware is right. It's extremely aware of the tradition from which it, it comes, but is never self-conscious mm. about that uh, inheritance, that legacy. Um, it's immensely literate, but, but as you say, it wears that literacy, that uh, awareness of the utopian tradition very lightly indeed. And you know, as you'd expect with a book from John, it's incredibly you know, subtle and that is not something you can say about many utopian novels you know going back over centuries perhaps including um moore's book you know founding gesture of the uh, of the genre um it's uh, and it's it's wonderfully kind of tender and and melancholic in tone as well as as well as hopeful um it, it really is a terrific a terrific book um the kinds of uh, authors I think that it it channels in various ways, and John might might correct me or might argue that it, it, it does so unconsciously, sometimes explicit, are uh, not just more obviously uh, Shakespeare, Shakespeare's Tempest, for example. Um, there's a fairly explicit allusion to that. Um, the kind of late 19th century utopians who regenerated the, the genre. Um, Wells, who's cited in an epigraph about uh, the future of humanity. I think it comes from the outline of history, uh, the future of humanity being a, a race between mm -hmm. education and catastrophe. Uh, that's one of the many signals that John, incidentally, is engaging in an extremely timely way with our present political conjuncture there are references satirical references to trump uh, and uh, and to other you know all too contemporary phenomena uh, which which reinforce that then there's william morris as well who imparts uh, a kind of pastoral uh, impetus to to the book uh, there's richard jeffries uh, less less explicitly but i suspect that he's there somewhere 
particularly in this idea which is important, it seems, to, to John of, as it were, rewilding, of, uh, of, of allowing nature to reclaim uh, the social and to reinvigorate it uh, and, to, uh, and, and to disorder it, but in a, in a productive and, and creative way. Perhaps we can come back to that. And that is, uh, you know, that's an aspect of the, of the anarchist dimension of the, uh, or, or premise of the, of the utopia of the book, it seems to me. But what John does, I think, absolutely brilliantly, what he very cleverly pulls off is that, well, really, it's just a kind of, it, it's a kind of preface to utopia in some respects. It's a prolegomena to, to utopia in that, um, well, one of the problems with the utopian genre, one of the reasons that so many utopias are in many ways unreadable, is that the setting out, more or less rationally, of the organizational features of the, the society <coughs> that's being idealized and projected and, and, and recommended to, to the readers, tends to be an extremely dull business. It tends to be a dry, it's often a dry exercise in sociology. It often you know, involves the author riding various hobby horses extremely hard and, and boring, boring the reader as a result. The whole business of actually representing utopia is often, in this tradition, I think, Pathetic. Uh, it's often a, a complete anticlimax. And what John very brilliantly does um, is he he just teases the reader. He to, so to give you a sense of of um, how this plays out, his protagonist, his time traveller, uh, who's launched sort of fifty years into the future, and it's it's very funny the the, the time travelling episode. Um, incidentally, um, he arrives and is immediately put into quarantine on this island. Um, and that, that's a terrific, a terrific device because it means that we never actually encounter in all its banality <laughs> the world, um, the world of, of utopia itself. Instead, we get this, uh, we're just permanently perched on the brink of utopia. And various fascinating glimpses of utopia come our way and come the protagonist's way. They're visible through the window, as it were. Um, and, um, and, and that makes it all the more alluring, all the more suggestive, all the more politically sort of tantalizing uh, and all the more powerful, I think. Um, but it, and it, it certainly doesn't pull its political punches as a result. Um, one of the ways in which Utopia gets glimpsed from this quarantine um, is in the form of various written documents that are passed on that 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 the uh, that the protagonist gets to explore in in a in an archival form in the building in which he's he's lodged as he assimilates himself to this to this new world to this new temporality to this new new space and um, so we get. We get glimpses of, of the kind of world that this utopia embodies and the kind of history that brought it into, into being through uh, letters, through fragmentary diaries, through bits of autobiography, uh, through writings like the one that we've just um, heard from, uh, from John, all authored by different characters. Um, that too, it seems to me, is a brilliant, a brilliant device because, well, there's... Famous within utopian studies is a famous book 
by someone called Robert Elliot, published, I think, in 1970, called The Shape of Utopia. And he there makes this interesting argument that the best way of judging the newness, the, the, the radicalness, the originality, the efficacy of a utopian novel is by looking at the role that art, the, fo the form that art assumes in this new society, in this utopian, this future society. It's an idea that Frederick Jameson, who was a colleague of Robert Elliot's, uh, has historically been very taken by and has referred to many times in his writings on utopia. Um, but of course, that presents a real representational problem as well. You know, how do you represent what a work of art would look like in an Un, in almost unimaginable future. Um, again, in representing that work of art or giving a sense of it, one immediately risks banalizing or, or pedestrianizing um, the, the, you know, the, the, the new aesthetic that emerges under these new utopian social conditions. What we get instead um, are, is not a, a whole work of art, um, in its utopian form. We just get these stray, these fugitive, fragmentary glimpses of writings from, from, our, from our future. And um, so I think there are various ways, in other words, in which it very cleverly and subtly <coughs> circumvents some of the, the aesthetic and the representational problems that are pretty much structural to utopia uh, as a genre. And that's one of the reasons why I valued it uh, in reading it an enormous amount. I just want to, before I stop talking, I want to uh, just quote from one paragraph, which I think is particularly revealing and suggestive. It's the conversation uh, between our time-traveling protagonist and Ben, who's his main interlocutor, who's the uh, individual who welcomes him to to the island and who helps to assimilate him and it is all about assimilation in some ways um, and uh, it he, he says at one point um, this place and you'll hear an echo here of the of the tempest as the play says the island is full of voices it's a large island sometimes it's hard to remember that it's an island at all I suppose it could be argued that any utopia would have to be an island but this canton of the imagination is even larger now than it once was, larger and more populous of voices and spirits. The image, concept of the canton of the imagination, I think is absolutely brilliant. Um, partly because this is a novel, as the utopian genre is more generally, obsessed with space as well as time, uh, with carving out space of one kind or another in which some alternative might be uh, made to seem viable or, or, or possible. And partly because of the, I don't know, the lovely resonance of that phrase, canton meaning, uh, which carries echoes of, of the poetic form canton, the song. Um, it's a song of the imagination, this, this novel, as well as a, a corner of the imagination, a kind of a canton in that sense, a, a sort of geometrical segment, but encouraged not least in fact by a reference slightly later on in, 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 the, in the book to etymology. Uh, John uh, reconstructs the etymology of hogmanay very informatively <laughs> for me. Um, encouraged by that recourse to etymology, I went further into the etymology of Canton, and it originally, perhaps someone will correct me, in fact, but uh, originally it seems it comes from a herald heraldic uh, grammar, 
and refers to a corner of a, of a, of a crest, of a heraldic crest, mm -hmm. but it implies um, uh, something that's at a slight angle. Uh, Canton is not just a corner, but it's, a, it's an angle. And I think this, this utopia, Havagay, very brilliantly dramatizes the way in which all utopias are, are at, at an angle. They construct a kind of canton, a, a sequestered, quarantined, if you like, space um, in which political and social and all sorts of other ideas, aesthetic ideas, might be explored that's, that, it's a, that is at an odd orthogonal angle to, to reality. Um, and if, you know, if, if there'd been nothing else of value in the novel, and there's an enormous <laughs> amount because it's hugely rich, I'd have kind of happily read it just to read that, uh, that phrase, canton of the imagination, which I think is, is wonderfully telling. Well, tremendous. I'm almost tempted to say our work here is done. I mean, that was, um, <laughs> that was absolutely fantastic, uh, Matthew. Thank you so much. John, would you like to pick up on anything that Matthew said before yeah, I, I, I dive I'm, in? I was, while you were talking, I was thinking about one of the things that, one of the things you learn when you do research is how not to do something. I may not learn how to do it, but you may at least learn how not to do it. And I don't know if you know Skinner's Walden too, I'm sure you do, um, where he can't, he can't help himself. He has to show you living examples as proof of everything that, that, that his utopia um, works. This is Skinner, the um, behaviorist psychologist. psychologist. He wrote this um, utopian book called Walden Two, and um, when you talk about culture, you can you can walk through the rooms of this Walden Two and point to these families of people who all play the cello or something brilliantly. Although two days ago they didn't that kind of thing, um, and you know this it, it's it's very grating. I mean, I, I kind of agree with him in almost everything until until the end. Um, that that that's how my 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 utopia would be. That would manifest itself through. Human relations and culture, but he's just so insistent on showing you little tableau um, or or what are those things called in, in museums in America where they have um, dioramas. Dioramas. There's a diorama for everything. <laughs> so he says something conceptual and then he points and there they all are. It's it's like something else, some grotesque movie, you know. But, but I think that that point you identify so well about the the the, the, the that the moment, the threat, dwelling on the threshold of the mm. utopia, mm. is obviously a very conscious choice, and it's and it's highlighted, understandably, on the back of the book, where you say, "All I can tell you about utopia." This is a, a quote from one of the texts: "Is how to prepare for it." After that, the question of whether it has truly come into existence can only be answered by its inhabitants. So the proposal, that I think you say in 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 the book, you're two steps away from utopia, and yeah. and, and the offer, the idea. The kind of gift, the extension of the hand towards it, is is where the real energy lies. And yeah, and, and and he doesn't see my my time traveller doesn't see anything of utopia, and, and except through the telling, he does see it through the window. He mm. sees a landscape in which um, you can see that something good is happening because wild animals are moving about, for example. But his his only vision through to utopia is through this guy. Who is this? He's like a convert. He's like he's so enthusiastic for all the ideas of of that he's learned from the text, that he's learned from living in this place, and and it, it would be like you know joining some kind of church and having your mentor attributed to you, you know, given to you, and and find an incredibly kind of 
effusive and, and, and you know, kind of constantly saying, oh, but, you know, this is so great because this, you know, and you're like, oh, shut up, you know. But you never get to see, you know, to go through and see. And in the end, a woman arrives, thank God, because we've been all male so far, and her name is Anne Harrod, and, and she, of course, you see her as evidence of the kind of calm and well, the right word is, you know, uh, living in accord with things that, 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 that living in utopia, and she's one of the old. Um, the people who came to Harrogate came in dribs and drabs from all over, desperate to get away from whatever had been behind them in their history. So, um, you know, they're, they're not, they formed this community by working together. They didn't come as a community to Harrogate, they made it there. One of the, one of the ideas that, uh, that the concepts that you play around with and it seems to uh, have an important role is, is interanimation. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So I wanted to ask you about that, in fact. Um, you say, I can't remember exactly what you say, but you say uh, uh, as someone, you know, the, the phrase interanimation as someone famous once said or something like that. And so, of course, I didn't know <laughs> who had said, inter used the word phrase interanimation and I scurried to my computer. And... Um, and Googled it, of course. Uh, so John Donne used it. I don't know if that's who you were thinking of. Um, which Partly. Which seemed, seemed yeah. uh, appropriate, not least given the, you know, no man is an island um, line. Mm. Um, but I wondered if you, um, yeah, I wondered if you could say a little bit about, um, about interanimation. Not least, I was thinking back to reading A Lie About My Father and to, and, and to some of the, to the LSD trips that, mm. uh, that you described there, because some of what you were saying about interanimation uh, seemed to come out of, of that kind of, kind of experience. Well, I, I, I hesitate to do this because it's part of the fun. Um, you know, when you're working on any project that's going to take more than, you know, as Norman McCaig used to say, there are three kinds of poems. There's one cigarette poem and two cigarette poems. And a, Maybe even a three cigarette poem. <laughs> um, if you're working on more than something, well, I don't smoke, but if you're working on something that involves more than three cigarettes, or in my case, probably three huge painkillers, um, you know, you need to mute yourself somehow. So actually, it's a bit of a joke because somebody famous once said it's actually me. Ah. So I, wrote, I wrote a poem called Interanimation yeah. as part of a sequence that I'd done. For me, the word interanimation. as such, well, you've got the done reference, but it's mostly used in terms of texts, the way in which texts interanimate each other, you know. Um, and it, the, the, the theory that's expressed by the master, as it were, behind the scenes, is that, you know, we all, I mean, it's, it, it, it's common knowledge in a sense, although we don't act as if it were, is that we all interanimate each other. You know, that creatureliness is a fabric. It's not a bunch of individual points. It's a, it's a fabric, whether we like it or not. Um, we're all, as it were, you know, part of one living creaturely fabric. Um, and that's what, an environment, that's what an ecology is, yeah. I mean, it's quite fun. So at the height of whenever we started, I guess it was the 80s, all the old hippies were saying things like, yeah, we're all one man, you know, we're all kind of... And, and, and Baudrillard came out and said, yeah, we are, unfortunately. You know, because <laughs> um, it, isn't, it, isn't it isn't just an easy thing to say, oh, we're all kind of... We all depend on each other and we all are part of this interplay of creatureliness. It's also a huge responsibility and a matter sometimes of pain. Um, the, the, the disease which causes the poss possibility for the utopia to happen on, on the island 
the diseases caused by all the things that are actually causing diseases. Um, hugely um, advanced kind of uh, ways in which we can move disease vectors around the world. You know, somebody gets on a plane in Sydney and goes to New York and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, our, our, the, the fact of interanimation, the fact that we're all part of this creaturely fabric means that things like diseases can spread really quickly or could under certain circumstances. I don't know if I've ever read that book, Randy Schultz's book about the AIDS crisis and the band played on. And it's got this wonderful passage, this wonderful tragedy, it makes you weep, about how everything started from what they called you know, patient zero or patient one or whatever it was. And worked out how, and it happened, this guy was a flight attendant for Air Canada, I think it was. And so he was traveling all around the world and, and you know, he was having, he was very promiscuous apparently. And he was having lots of relationships around the world, and he was really spreading this virus around. But he didn't know. Um, and when they found him, they, they said to him, he, he kind of understood what they were saying to him, that he was number one guy, this, this, this huge pattern. And he said, no, I can't be number one. If I had it, someone gave it to me. You know, but that horrible moment of responsibility, you know, when you go to work, you shouldn't go to work, you should stay in bed, you got cold. You go to work, and then five days later, everybody's got the cold that you had. You think, oh, that was me, that was my fault. You know, and, and, and that's part of being interanimate as well. You know, it's a kind of banal part of it, perhaps. But, you know, that fabric of, of being is, is you know, dark and light and, and rich and banal and all of these things. That's what I thought by interanimation. The poem is actually about me and a cow. <coughs> I was trying to save this cow who was dying of milk fever, and she fell on me. And um, I just, just remember having that feeling when, she, when I realized my pelvis wasn't broken, that you know, she and I were in it together. You know, so, and that's where the idea of that internet animation came out of. So it was a little joke with myself. You know. I do have an ego, after all. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, just before we open it out, can, uh, thoughts for, for both of you, really, in, in slightly different ways. But can we come back to this idea of the natural order? Because the anarchist impulse through the book is absolutely central, as you've said so well already, and the idea that anarchism is not chaos, but actually a respect for a much deeper and larger order. But that relates to what Matthew picked out about rewilding and the idea that, that again, this imposition of an artificial and temporary human order removes incredible ranges of possibility from the world that both humans and other species share. So I just wonder, Matthew, a question for you about anarchist utopias, is there a tradition, a particular tradition of that? And then John, I, I suppose, just thinking out loud about what that, what the implications of that mean, really, for both the reader and obviously onwards into the world. Um, I mean, the tradition of anarchist utopias is much less pronounced, as far as I know, than, uh, than, than socialist utopias. And, and indeed, the socialist utopian tradition is tends to be uh, at the more authoritarian end of the socialist spectrum anyway. I mean, utopian thinking, to the extent that it is, and utopian fiction, to the extent that it is about programmatically laying out uh, a, an ideal future, uh, involves, often involves a kind of a, you know, top-down control. Um, it involves a, a state um, that, uh, you know, that's central to, to everything. And... Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's much less uh, rich in uh, the utopian tradition in, 
in utopias that explore um, explore anarchism anarchism as a political political possibility. I mean, in in many ways, I think it would have the utopian tradition would have been a lot richer for that, and it would have been been less different to, in some ways, to to, to realist fiction if it had, because it would necessarily be about the individual relationships that that you know go up to make go together to make a good community the interanimation to use your term um, and less about the kind of uh, you know social strictures and uh, and the rational plans that uh, that might coordinate people in the in the mass mm. um, so you know to that extent too I think this is an, you know a really original contribution to the uh, to the genre I mean that off the top of my head, I can't think of any anarchist uh, fictions. Um, there are there are anarchist fictions. No doubt, someone in the audience will be able to uh, uh, point to to ones that I've I've forgotten off the top of my head. But um, but that's my instinct mm-hmm. is that. Um, don't know what you think, John. I think I think William Morris got, Morris comes yeah. as close as anybody. Yeah. So yeah. I would think of in that way. Um, what were you asking? Well, I mean, it's just this idea about order, oh, order yeah, which yeah. I think is really, I mean, it's a fundamental dialogue with anarchism, isn't it, from, you know, the, the worst, you know, media sound bites of, of this bringing of chaos. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's extraordinary, even now, that, um, you know, people report in the news and they'll say, it's anarchy here. Mm. And no, it's not. Anarchy means um, that every individual um, votes for what they want to happen and, and then the community negotiates that, etc. But um, historically, every, every kind of philosophical writer I've ever, I've ever found interesting turns out really to be an anarchist. I mean, Lao Tzu in the, 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 the Dao Di Ching, um, that's his Dao Di Ching, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's putting down the principles of following the natural order. You observe the natural order. He says, the Dao that, that, that you can speak about isn't the real Dao. And you don't know what that is. It's a mystery. So it's like maybe like some kind of a Christian god, say. But you can see the action of the Tao everywhere you look in nature. And if you look at the, the action of the Tao in nature and follow it, then you, can, you will make mistakes. So if human des- there's nothing wrong with human order or human design as long as it is observant of the natural order. But if it tries to control nature, if it tries to impose itself on nature, including other people, which is a part of nature too, then it goes wrong. It's bound to go wrong. Um, but the other one in the Western tradition is Spinoza. You know, Spinoza's in the, in the ethics, it seems to me, a wonderful, he lays out in a very beautiful, elegant um, way the, the idea of following the natural order. So it isn't just some kind of Eastern thing. It was there in the Western tradition all the time. And many others um, um, I can think of in terms of philosophy. And even, you know, I mean, I remember when I was a student, I, I was very interested in Heidegger, and my, my German philosophy teacher told, I said, um, where's the books on Heidegger in the library? He said, what, that Nazi? And he was, I'm afraid, sad he was a Nazi. Yeah, okay. But he also wrote some of the most interesting things about our problems with technology and with building, etc., which we all know now is a very valuable text. And one of those, a little essay, building, drawing, thinking, as was probably most people are aware of it, still for me, says a lot about the human relationship with the natural world in terms of what we do when we build. I mean, when we build anything, and, 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 and you know, dwelling as well. Um, and, and dwelling, of course, has now become a kind of cliche of, kind of eco-critical thinking of, 
This is the way we distinguish between imposing our order on the world around us and living in accord with the world around us, and we call that dwelling. If we can manage to do that, and make people like some bioregionalists say, I'm, you know, I'm dwelling in, in the natural world, in my region, according to the ecology of the region, according to the order that's there. Um, everything that I've ever found elegant in building, in architecture, these things, they all seem to me to, to derive their most beautiful and elegant features from looking at the natural world. So I, I wanted to just, I mean, there were, there were many more I left out, but I wanted to just um, have in that book just little snippets here and there of things from Spinoza, or something from Lao yeah, yeah. or something from Chansu, and, uh, you know, um, say, this is a worldwide vision. You know, it isn't just some people over here. All over the world, at different times, in different cultures, and different philosophical trends, yeah. anarchist thinkers have emerged. They didn't necessarily call themselves anarchists. Yeah. But if you think about the, the etymology of the word anarchy, it's like, it's relatively self-explanatory. Yeah. Sort of having a top-down order imposed upon things, we allow <laughs> order to emerge. And it chimes with emergence theory in science, it chimes with you know, all kinds of things, chaos theory too. Um, we, we tend to, I've been doing a lot of work on bees for about 10 years now, seven years certainly, um, with Amy Shelton, an artist down in, um, who lives down in Exeter and does wonderful work with bees. And one of the things you, you learn from looking at bees is they're not little hives of industry like some 16th century moral story will say, or, you know, that bees aren't there to serve us. Um, and all of these ways in which we use bees in a kind of, you know, kind of um, symbolic way, I suppose, or metaphorical ideas about bees, Mandeville's ideas of all the, you know, the, the, the hive and this kind of utopian, actually, vision. Yeah. And everybody's got their job to do and they all do it and they're all efficient and stuff like that. Or Metalink's idea about how you can constantly take away the honey and yet they still continue to function. Well, actually, as we now know from um, colony collapse disorder problems, you keep on taking away the honey and replacing it with corn syrup, your bees are going to die. Yeah. Um, so, but if you just let them, let them live according to the order that they create in the hive or in the, you know, whatever, um, they, they, they continue to prosper. But the first thing we did wrong about bees was to say, to call this bee here the queen. Take it to a human being, take it any, any, any woman in this room. Would you like to be the queen? If the queen means you sit immobile all the time, force-fed this gooey royal jelly stuff and pump out babies all the time. Do you, does that sound like queenship to anybody here? <laughs> How anybody could mistake that condition for a queen? I don't know. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's a, a brilliant example of how, yeah, the human order is imposed on mm. the natural to great detriment all around. Can I just say very quickly, yeah, Ursula Le Guin, sorry, preemptively oh, yeah, to say that, yeah, yeah. she's the <laughs> she's the author of, of Anarchist Utopias. And, um, Absolutely. But yeah. Morris, I think Morris is important. Yeah. Morris is clearly important to you because apart from anything, and I won't say anything more about this, but maybe we can discuss this further in the, uh, later, is that the aesthetic, the artwork is a model for... For the kind of society you imagine, yeah. play that that you know the society yeah, yeah. that you imagine is one in which things are done as an end in themselves, and in which 
to which play is absolutely structural. Mm -hmm. anyway. No, tremendous, exactly. And I hope it's clear before we open out that, of course, because John doesn't dwell on who's doing the washing up or, or cleaning the toilets, he has much more space to think out loud about these spiritual philosophical concerns. And the book <laughs> is, is full of these uh, extended reflections on the, the nature and role of breath and, and, and play, as yeah, Matthew said, um, in ways that are absolutely rigorous and free of all the... The, the waffle Thanks. that we might uh, find elsewhere. So, yeah, tremendous work. Um, any thoughts? Your own utopia, of course. Um, do propose them very briefly, um, if you can. Um, any responses to what you've heard, provocations, challenges, dystopian inquiries, <laughs> or anything else along those lines, which pretty much covers all of human life? Yes, thank you. Uh, John, I, I just wanted to ask you about... Is this actually on? Uh, I can hear you. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, the role in your book of the inarticulate and the inarticulable and the relationship of that to the idea of a utopian project. So it seems that there's something, well, you're sketching out something that seems like kind of the diametric, diametric opposite of the liberal Habermasian idea of a community of rational agreement on ideas. You're talking about something, somehow people coming to an understanding about working on uh, living together on grounds that can't be set out necessarily in explicit ideas or, or with words. And so I just wanted to ask you to comment about this, this idea of a community of people living together um, in, on a basis that's not um, explicit and, and, and um, based on rational principles. Yeah, right. Um, I guess one of, the, one of the ways I'd respond to that is talk about barn building. Um, a lot of communities are one of the things that it, people do in the community, and, and it's kind of built in as an assumption here and an implication here that they would do the same thing, is that when somebody needs a home, everyone around builds it with them. And they don't have to, you know, they don't draw up designs or anything, they build it together, and they, they would know, you know. And, and of course, I love this, the film, it's really bad, every other way possible it's bad, but there's one scene in it where um, it's called, it's got Harrison Ford. Witness. 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 Yeah, yeah, and yeah. they do a barn building yeah, yeah. scene, and you see this Peter Weir was a very talented guy, he just couldn't handle narrative. But um, this barn building scene is gorgeous, <laughs> and they all come together, and you see people who've got their little kind of grudges and things, but when they get together and build the barn, they just silently build it together, well, more or less silently. They occasionally say, you want perhaps some nails or join a sandwich. But that's about it. And they build it together and they know how to build it together. And I think you learn how to live in community, not because of principles. I, think, I, I don't think you learn how to live in community that way. You wouldn't, it would have to be kind of more spontaneous than that. But that, I was actually talking yesterday about the, 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 the three-part um, agreement kind of Habermas's three-part agreement idea um, in the context of, of something completely different in a way. But it was interesting because what I felt I've seen recently is ever since Tony Blair's Princess Diana speech and then on into why we were in Iraq, Tony Blair had jettisoned the first part of that Habermas is talking about, you know, the facts, the truth, the observable facts around us and then we can come to an agreement on those. He just jettisoned those. And, but said, we can all agree, because I agree, that morally and, and, and socially and, and communally, we, this is good. 
And then I very sincerely believe this, so we're going to go and do this. So he said, he basically said, um, two and three still hold for me. You know, the, the um, social and the, the effective of it, or the individual. And now we've got Donald Trump, who's, who's completely said, you know, said, forget facts, or Fox News, forget facts, forget any kind of social or communal agreement about what might be moral or not. Just, this is the answer. I hold these things to be true. Sincerely, I hold them to be true. And therefore, my facts are true because they're mine. Yours are irrelevant. Because I know that yours are wrong. And I know mine are right. And that's what, that's what the basis of public um, discourse is at the moment in, in politics. It's happening, it certainly happened in France during the election. And it's happening here now during our, our election. People said to me, um, oh, there's this really silly thing that's going around saying that Jeremy Corbyn hasn't been fairly treated by the press. Isn't that silly? The press are all left wing. <laughs> looking at this press like, have you got two heads or what? You know, every time I see Channel Four News, as soon as anybody who's got any sympathy whatsoever with Labour in any way whatsoever, they immediately shove the microphone in their face and say, "But do you think Corbyn's electable? Can he win?" You know, and you think, "Oh, actually, let's talk about the policies. Do these policies make sense, or do these policies make sense?" We've skipped that altogether. We've done it for a long time now, but. But we haven't even, we're now agreeing that um, it should all be about how we feel about this guy, or that guy, or Theresa May's shoes, you know? She has got better shoes than Jeremy Corbyn, I'm going to vote for her. <laughs> but, but you know, that, that, that kind of sense of that. And, and of course, um, an, an anarchist um, community would, would, would exist by constantly, constantly working things out, you know? the way that an ice hockey team plays, you know? You don't just stand there in the position and wait for the puck to come to you. You flow following the puck or following the defense um, plan that you've got, whatever it might be. You constantly flow. I mean, we learn from things like that. I mean, ice hockey is a natural activity, remember? It's not, it's not a human activity. You could say ice hockey versus the natural order. No, no, not the same. When people play well, ice hockey expresses a natural order. That's the thing. That's what sport is for. I mean, we didn't mention sport, but I say I assume that culture also means sport. And you know, if you see a great baseball team playing or a great ice hockey team playing, they are expressing natural order and not some kind of human order. Some coach might sit them down in a room beforehand and say, "We're going to do this. We're going to do that. This and this. Here's a diagram." But once they get on the ice, it's something else is, is happening. And the ones who don't play well are the ones who try to do what the coach told them. Coach is only good for one thing. Making pep talks during speeches. But you shouldn't plan anything, you should just let the team play. <laughs> <laughs> like, could, could, we, could you use the. Um, sorry, could you just use the. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> or is it gone? Is it? Is it done? All right. No, I agree completely. Yeah. And I think I cut it out and then there was going to be a section about improvisation. Um, because I, I like jazz, and um, and, and I'll, often people I, I meet who say, "Oh, I don't understand jazz, or I don't like jazz, or whatever." They think that when I talk about improvisation, they mean these bunch of guys just walk into a room, sit down, and then all start playing together magically, um, you know, in this wonderful, which can happen. Um, but 
I tried to explain, and my son is interested in music, but so far it's playing Kurt Cobain songs really, really violently on his guitar. <laughs> I, I tried to rearrange them for ukulele, which is kind of insane. But um, I tried to explain to him about, you know, what the standard is, that you use a standard, and the more banal the standard, the more inventive. You know, Miles Davis doing Someday My Prince Will Come. I mean, you know, a very banal song. Or Cindy Lauper's song, um, Time After Time. You hear Miles' version of that in Munich, the live concert in Munich. It's, it's, it's beautiful, it makes you weep. It's so brilliantly inventive and, 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 and emotionally kind of devastating. And you think, that was based on that little pop song, Time After Time, you know, that, that song. And, you know, and, and the whole band working together. And yeah, okay, Davis might have given them some thoughts to start off with. But then somebody steps out and blows, just kind of blows you know, their own thing, you know. Um, yeah, it's magical, but it's real. It isn't magical at all. Something happens, it's spontaneity. It's Hokusai saying, somebody said to Hokusai, how do you draw bamboo? How do you paint bamboo? And he said, oh, you look at bamboo for 70 years, then you become bamboo, and then you start painting. <laughs> it's easy. That's what, it's not what Mark Davis is. He became several Simply forms of jazz, you know. <laughs> I wonder whether that's also, in a way, the process of writing. I don't know if you know this Claude Simon's uh, speech to the Nobel Committee when he won the Nobel Prize. Uh, he said a lovely thing about the process of writing. You don't start with an intention. You start by writing, and then it happens. Yeah. Whereby the result is always infinitely richer than the intention. Well, absolutely, yeah, and that's, that's another example of anarchism in action. Yeah. If I try to impose an intention upon my writing, I'm, I'm acting like a boss, you know? And if I let something happen, yeah. People don't know how they do things. Hello. Um, in Ursula Le Guin's the, the Dispossessed, obviously the language is really important to the community on, on the, in Utopia, essentially. Um, in Havagate, is the language evolved different? Did you explore that at all? <coughs> yeah, um, good question. Don't we hear it? Question about language in Ursula Le Guin and whether the language in Havagate is part of the Utopian project. Yeah. I, I would have liked to have done something on that, but I didn't in the end because it's actually quite a short book. It's only 50,000 words. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating how... Actually, language uh, evolution is often more uh, an interest for dystopian writers, isn't it? You often find that the dystopian writer is, is, talks about the way in which a certain kind of language... Not evolution so much as imposition, isn't it? Really, like Orwell yeah, or... Zamyatin. Evolution or... Yeah. Of language, or reification of language, or the uh, or the reduction of language to merely kind of technological or uh, or technical mm. or uh, utilitarian, um, you know, limits. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah. I think that's true about dystopia. Um, reduction is really, I think, the key thing, and it's happen it happens every day, of course. Um, the powers that be want us to speak a, a reduced language. Because it, it, it reduces our ability to question subtly what they want us to buy. I mean, they're always selling us something, right? <clears throat> Whether it's a new iPhone or a war, they're selling us these things, and they're using language to sell it. 
And they want us to speak a very simple language, a reduced language, because then we can't question it so much. And I, people say to me, oh, you're political and yet you write poetry. Why are you wasting your time writing poetry? As Auden says, poetry makes nothing happen. And I believe that every poem, is a, is every good poem, or whatever that means, every poem that I like, uh, does something with language which insists upon language's richness and subtlety and importance um, you know, in the world that as long as, the po as long as the poets are still writing poems and we read them, we remember that language is rich and complex and it's trying to match a rich and complex world and its descriptions. Not just poets, of course, but, you know, uh, that's one of my explanations for still pointlessly writing poems, which trouble people read, you know, <laughs> is, is that poets insist upon the importance and complexity of language. And the powers that be don't want, they, they don't like, po I mean, we're not dangerous. I mean, I'm not going to say that what poets are dangerous because they're free, ha, ha, ha. But, you know, they still don't like us very much unless they can co-opt us to write kind of copy for advertising. They don't like the fact that, I mean, you know, Bill Shapcott's book about war language, for example, well, not all of it's about that, but the way in which we use this reduced vocabulary for war because it covers up the, 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 the gruesomeness and ugliness of war. You know, we use euphemism all the time. And um, the way in which we, people sell us stuff. You know, it's, it's a, I always find it interesting that for, I've lived for 60 years now and I've heard the words, Fresh and new, describing every product that I've ever seen advertised. Like, well, what was it like before? Wasn't it fresh before? Or wasn't it new before? You know, um, or wasn't it, you know, new advanced? You think, oh, was it, how, in which way has it advanced? It's still detergent, you know? And, and we just swallow all this stuff. And of course, the poet wants to say, hey, it's not new, it's not advanced, it's detergent, you know? And so, um, yeah, I wish I, 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 I wish I'd made it into a, a twice as long a book. Maybe not, actually. Maybe not. <laughs> I'd probably you still be writing it. More than enough to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But no, language is very, very interesting in terms of talking about all of those. I don't actually believe in utopia, by the way, as such. I believe that anarchism would be a, a communal lifelong project in which we would constantly fail but, but fail in more interesting ways than we're currently failing, which is at least something, you know. Can I just make a couple of quick observations in response to that question? One is that, uh, that the title, although it doesn't devise a new language in the way that Moore's Utopia did, for example, um, the, the title uh, gives a glimpse of that. Oh, yeah. um, uh, it's probably the only word uh, in the in the novel that that does, but it you know nonetheless sort of opens out to the kind of linguistic uh, experimentation and and um, imagining that that you're talking about. Um, uh, but the the other thing I'd say is that you place a certain amount of emphasis, particularly towards the end, on the redemption of words that have become words that we use or don't really use that have either become rusty or have become so ideologically mm, freighted mm. and, uh, and, and you know, been overburdened with religious associations, become meaningless, etc. Um, and yeah, you impart a kind of new meaning to them in this new context of a different kind of society. In particular, to, to cite them, uh, kindness, grace, honour. Yeah. 
So, so it is about, yeah, it's about regenerating language, if not generating a new language. Yeah, and I think the most important of those right now is honor. You know, we have a, an astonishing ability to allow people to get away with the most incredible things that if you had any honor at all, you'd be resigning or committing harakiri or something, you know. Um, it's such a dishonorable society we live in. Well, this part of it, you know, the Anglo-American kind of, Europe, maybe to some extent European, lack of honor. But we've made honor a dirty word now, because if you use the word honor now, you start thinking about honor killings or something like that. So honor in day-to-day -day life. Yeah. Except in this bookshop where words are honoured for their original meanings, for their perfectly Great singular segment. expression, precise, <laughs> rigorous, pamulator, rigorous, <laughs> and beautiful, of course, always freighted with the best possible intentions, um, expanding the horizons of the possible. So many thanks to you for coming. Thanks to everyone at the shop. John Burnside, Matthew Bond. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.